We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a guest I am excited to talk about, about adult improvement and other matters. He is a Singapore-based grandmaster. He is also the CFO at Lucent, which is an oncology company. Um, and he is really an adult improver as he made the GM title this year at the old, old in air quotes, age of 36. So very excited to talk about that long journey. He's also an author. In 2014, he wrote a book called Chess Developments, The Sicilian Nidorf. He's a renowned opening theoretician, um, as that book might suggest and as his reputation suggests. So we'll probably talk about some openings a little bit. He's also been doing some um, admirable charity initiatives, such as um, Chess Against COVID charity initiative. He's been organizing some events and the seven-time Singapore champion. And I think that's about everything. So let's bring him in. Kevin Go, how are you? 
Hi, Ben. Thanks, thanks for the extremely generous uh, introduction. <laughs> How did I do? Did I miss any major uh, biographical bullet points, Kevin? No, you recovered um, pretty much everything. And <laughs> yeah, extremely complimentary, of course. Oh, good. Well, yeah, I'm excited to chat, but I mean, about chess improvement, but also about your life and career generally. Um, and but one thing we were just talking about before we pressed record is obviously we were talking about how chess is doing pretty well right now. And you mentioned that in your native Singapore in particular, you feel like chess is gaining popularity. What's happening on the ground in Singapore? Yeah, I think that um, due to COVID-19 in the last couple of months, um, the, the Singapore government has uh, introduced uh, what we what we term as a circuit breaker. It is a fancy food term. Um, uh, to describe uh, some COVID-19 measures to sort of uh, flatten the curve as, as what people like to say. So, so for one, I work, working from home is kind of mandatory um, unless you're in essential services. Uh, there are no sports events um, in Singapore as well as globally. And, and thankfully, uh, because, uh, because of the internet, uh, that you know, we could do a lot of uh, events online and that was how the Chess Against COVID came about. So I was extremely fortunate that um, I, I made the GM title. In fact, FIDE gave me the title on, on the 1st of April. And that was just before uh, everything went crazy. And then there was a travel lockdown. So uh, thanks to this, uh, the perfect timing, um, the media got in touch. And in conjunction with the charity, uh, we sort of got quite a fair bit of coverage on uh, in the last couple of months. So that was that was really fortunate for chess. Yeah. And I mean, of course, we're all grateful that you're, you're help giving chess a good name by organizing these initiatives. So I know you did the Singapore against New York match, and I think you've done one or two other events as well. But could you tell us a little bit about like the, how the idea for that came about and um, how you went about organizing it? Yeah. So the, the idea of um, having a series of uh, just online chess initiatives uh, came from a friend of mine. Uh, his name is Junior Tay. And we were just saying that, okay, now that chess events are being uh, cancelled all over the world, we can't have training, we can't do anything face-to-face. Uh, -face, so we might as well do some online stuff and just to keep the chess community uh, in Singapore connected. So so the ideas of having some simults, maybe some lectures and, you know, just some events to just to keep the chess players uh, entertained. Uh, came about and we quick, very quickly formed a team of uh, volunteers to, to sort of put all this together. Initially, the, the idea was just to, uh, you know, do some chess stuff for, for chess players and uh, to keep it light, maybe one event, one or two events um, uh, every weekend. And then Olympia Khan, you know, came up with the, you know, the, the ingenious idea of doing this for charity because it, it sort of makes sense. And then the whole thing just exploded. Um, we have a lot of volunteers coming forward, um, young players from the age of 10 uh, all the way to the age of 60 plus, you know, players coming out of retirement, offering to spend their time um, for the chess community. And and uh, it was great that everything worked out. And um, we raised uh, a total of about 170,000 uh, Singapore dollars. So... I'm not sure how much that that is in US. It's probably about 150 around there. Wow. So, so I think none of us ever expected anything like this, and 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 the media were extremely interested as well. So, so yeah, I think I think COVID nineteen 
was bad and unfortunate for everyone. But uh, at least in chess, I, it was it was a good thing that, that we could at least leverage uh, the fact that we could play chess on the internet. Yeah, it is great to see. And when I interviewed GM uh, Rustam Kazimjanov, um, right when COVID was hitting, um, he, one of the things he mentioned, and we were just starting to talk about sort of the online boom, and he was saying that he sort of wished that, um, I mean, he thought that the the fact that Chess was, was putting on these events was great, but he was a little worried that, um, that uh, I mean, not worried, but he was saying it would be nice if we did some charity things too. So it's nice to see that you pick up the baton and 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 push these initiative forward and raise so much money. That's awesome. Um, but I wanted to follow up on one thing because you mentioned your friend Olympio Khan, who I think a, a lot of uh, listeners who are on Chess Twitter will know. I mean, he's got a large following and a great Patreon page, and I always uh, enjoy his contributions to the uh, online chess discourse. Well, I, of course, haven't met him in person. We've had some nice online interactions, and I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, and I know you're friendly with him. Um, so t- tell us a little bit more about Olympio. <laughs> what's, what's he like in real life? Yeah, I should get paid for this because he's, he's, kind, of, he's kind of a mysterious guy. Um, he, he's really, you know, he, 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 he's really low profile. He, he's, um, he doesn't really like to... Um, the, he doesn't have too many friends. I think that's I think that's a fair comment to say, and that's because he chooses his friends very carefully. <laughs> but you but, made the cut. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah, it was uh, you know the GM title helped. <laughs> <laughs> but, but really, I think that uh, he's of course has uh, has a great uh, knowledge of chess history. I think he's one of the most famous uh, chess uh, historians in the world. And I I shouldn't give away anything, but uh, he's working on a really serious project. And uh, he in fact he just shared. The more details about this project um, with me a few a couple of hours ago, and it's something really exciting, and I hope that he announces it soon. Um, but yeah, a guy that is really passionate about chess, um, and um, yeah, great friend, and uh, actually really funny guy as you can see from his uh, his Twitter account. Yeah, yeah, I mean because he seems. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to hijack the interview and talk about Olympio the whole time. Um, and so and we also, can, I, we can talk about Olympio for for an hour. <laughs> and I should say, I'm probably, you know, if Olympia is willing, he'll be on the show sometime, probably around when the the large project you mentioned is coming out. At least, uh, mm-hmm. if I have anything to do with it, he will. But but yeah, I mean, because he seems he's so serious about chess history, and like you say, uh, renowned rightfully so, knows so much about it. But then every once in a while, he'll sprinkle in like some sort of like old school hip hop reference, reference or <laughs> some sort of comedy thing. So it's like he seems like super serious. Um, and, and like you say, like so, sometimes he gets in arguments with people. He's not he's not um, not afraid to do that. But then there's also obviously a light side. So. Anyway, we'll unravel the mystery of Olympia more in due yeah. time, but but let's let's get back to to your career. So obviously, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot we can talk about. You're having been the seven-time champion of Singapore, but I mean, to me, and I think to a lot of listeners, the most fascinating thing about your career is this epic journey to get the Grandmaster title. So it looks like you got your first norms in 2011 and 2012, and then got the last, the third norm in 2018, and then finally. Uh, got the last few rating points this year. So take us through that journey. Like how long has it been um, where you've said to yourself, I'm going to get the GM title? Like at, was it as soon as you got the IM title or was there a moment where it had to start to seem possible after that? Yeah, this this could take really long, but um, 
I remember that when I uh, when I made the IM title, I think that was in 2007. Um, I sort of feel that the gap between IM and GM uh, is, is really large. And I just felt I, I wasn't confident enough. I didn't think that I have the ability to get there. And I sort of thought that um, that's, that's it. You know, IM is good enough. I'm, I'm happy. You know, there's not that many IMs in Singapore. And, but it's, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty decent level. Let's, let's put it this way. And um, I focus on my career. Uh, Singapore is a pretty expensive place to live in. Um, right. so, so at some point, I think I was uh, listening to, I think it was it John Bartolomeo who was saying that if you want to take time off to become a GM, it's not the same as trying to become an FM or an IM. Uh, becoming a GM is a lot, a lot more serious. Um, it's, it's a bit hard to explain why, but it's, it's just that the, the gap in terms of the knowledge between a grandmaster and an IM uh, it's really the, the difference is really uh, something that is uh, uh, far greater than say the previous other the, the different le- other levels uh, in chess. So at the point, I didn't think that I could commit to the to that. I couldn't commit the time to to spend reading up to train and on top of that to to make a career for myself. So so I sort of you know hovered, uh, drifted around, you know, just playing some chess here and there, looking at some chess, and then playing in some Olympiads, but never really improving. And I wasn't overly concerned. And until in uh, 2010, um, I was sort of omitted from the from the Olympiad squad. And at the time, I felt it was it was unjustified because I had won the Singapore National Championships four years in a row before that. <laughs> yeah, you could so, say that. <laughs> yeah, I, was, <laughs> I was national champion from 2006 to 2009. And in 2010, I finished third. And uh, the selection committee basically uh, said that uh, only the top two places get a spot and then they are free to choose anyone else. So they, they conveniently omitted me from the team. And I remember that uh, I, was, I was just uh, really devastated because playing for the country is something that, uh, that I felt was really important to me. I, I take it as uh, a badge of honor and I try to play my best every time. Um, and I remember that I was at work and I semi broke down, you know, in the middle of the office. And, and that was the, that was the time when I sort of recollected and I sort of, you know, I spoke to myself. Um, I, I did a lot of soul searching at a, at a point in time, you know, and, and I just felt that, okay, well, what did I really do to, to deserve a place in the Olympia just because I'm number three in the country, but I haven't done anything right in the last few years. I sort of just uh, stagnated. I didn't really do anything to, to prove that I deserve to, to play for the country. So, and that was the point when I decided um, that um, perhaps um, I should take a year off from work and see how far I can go. And, and it all started from there. So that was 2010. That was late 2010. I, I spoke to my company. That was, that's KPMG Singapore. It's one of the biggest uh, account, accounting firms in the world. And they were very kind and, and generous. So, they basically said that uh, you get your job uh, once you once you come back. Um, you can take a year off. That's fine. We wish you all the best. And uh, I, I didn't really have any expectations. Um, but uh, what, what, what was important is that I had to have a strategy. Because I think around that time I was about 29. Is, I'm kind of old to try to become yeah. a GM. Sad but true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And my rating is not even that high. I was about 2390 or something. Oh, wow. 20, Ways yeah. to go. Yeah. 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 Huge, huge gap to, to try yeah, so to So he needed, there. just for any listeners who don't know, you need 2500 FIDE in addition to the three norms. Sorry, but yeah. go on. Yeah, that's right. So um, my my thought is I will give it a shot. I'll, I'll take one year. I see how far I can go. If, I, if I'm just miles off i'll just quit um, i'll just go back to work because at some point you have to be responsible as well you need you have your rest you have uh, you you need to you know you need to be responsible to those around you and and uh, you can't just pursue a dream without uh, caring about anything else so so i i had a plan i had a regime crafted out in uh, 2011 um basically it was eight hours of training every single day um, starting from 8 a.m., I wake up, I go for a run. So I, I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but no, no, that's, the, that's <laughs> the, this whole show is boring us with the details. We got to hear everything you did, and then hope that if we do it, we'll be grandmasters too. So, so yeah. tell us more about your routine during this period. Yeah, basically, I, I woke up at 8 a.m. every single day. I go for a one hour run. I, I have breakfast, and then I solve uh, two hours of of puzzles. So calculation studies. Or just tactics, and I was using uh, Perfect Your Chess. I think this uh, very popular book. I think many people should should know of this. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. People... Often recommended. Yeah. Very high level. Very, I mean, challenging yeah. puzzles, but but great. Extremely, yeah. extremely tough. And and uh, yeah, I I had a lot of fun working on those. And then the rest of the day is dedicated to opening preparation. So wow, is that essentially five to six hours minimum? And some days I go up to ten hours. And I, I sometimes wonder, like, uh, how do I keep the, this motivation going? And I think it's, it's really the, I think firstly, it's the, it's the anger, really the disappointment of not being selected. And, and then secondly, it's like, um, I wanted to prove a point to myself and see um, if I'm taking a year off, then I shouldn't be spending time watching Netflix in the morning and then wow. going to the gym <laughs> and having fun with friends. That just, just doesn't make any sense because I'm, I'm suffering uh, financially. I didn't have any... Uh, a, a big corporate sponsor. I do have some help from friends. I think Junior is one of them, as I mentioned, my good friend. And uh, Olympio is supportive in his own way. But uh, financially, it was a big hit. Um, so it doesn't make any sense. If you want to go all in, you go all in. And there's, 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 no, there's no reason to skive um, on the job, so to speak. Yeah. So, and then uh, in terms of tournament schedules, um, I, I had the idea of playing two events and then regroup, train for one month, identify the errors and the weaknesses, and then play another two events. And so in that entire year, if you average that out, I played about uh, 12 events, I think. So um, what surprised me was the, the first tournament that I played was the Budapest first Saturday GM event. And I was, and after four games, I had two out of four I felt really miserable. I had no friends. And that was where I met another one of your, um, I think, uh, a guest of yours. I think Eric Kislik. Uh, mm -hmm. I became friends with him there. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, um, I was already semi regretting <laughs> doing it. And then I won uh, three games in a row. And I needed two out of two in the last two games, and I scored one and a half. So in the end, I was just, yeah, I was just a half point short. So my first tournament uh, in the GM event, and I was half a point short, and that that really encouraged me. At the same time, I was also really disappointed to come so close. Um, but 
yeah, uh, life is as such. But uh, yeah, the the really positive thing that happened was uh, what happened next. Uh, and I I made my first GM not immediately in the second tournament in, in that and that was in Kashgamet, um, which is sort of a sister event to the to the Budapest uh, first Saturday series, and those events were are not easy at all. And I had the fortune of playing and meeting the the legend Gula Sucks, uh, who unfortunately has had passed away recently, but uh, yeah, he was. Uh, I, I won a really important game against him, one of my best games to date. It was in the French defense, and, and he was very uh, generous with his comments as well. So I made my first GM norm, and, and from then on, I, I knew that uh, you know I'm never going to stop because I made my first GM norm. It's, huh. it's, so so obviously, you know, there are some points when you feel it, it is possible to have uh, you know flukes here in uh, once in a while. But people try not to think about that. You you you, you yeah. always think that you have gotten here once, and you you would like to think that you can get there again. So that was how it all began. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, certainly it's a good sign that you only missed by half a point in the first event, then got it in the second event. But before we retrace that journey a little bit, I just wanted to get a little more context of um what your what your chess background was before you took this step. So, um, cause I'm just curious, like when did you start chess and, and what was it that gave you the belief that, that you still had more at like an age and a career circumstance when a lot of people would just kind of, um, put it on the back burner. Yeah. I, I started learning chess at the age of 10 and I, my, in my first tournament, I finished third. I think that was the nationals under 10. So, that encouraged me, and and I think I'm just really competitive, and, and for some reason chess just just made me really fascinated. There was there was I remember there was one incident when I was really young. I think I was eleven, when I crept down. So I was supposed to be asleep. There was school the next day, and I I literally like at midnight I crept downstairs and I set up a position on the on the dining table, um, a position which I couldn't solve in the day during the day, and I was. So annoyed that I couldn't solve it, that I actually had to, you know, right. stealthily <laughs> creep downstairs just to do Jeez. it. And my my mom caught me in the egg, and and surprisingly, she let me solve the puzzle. Like she just huh. said, okay, okay, how long do you need? So, <laughs> <laughs> so I I think it was the chess just got me really fascinated. There's just so many elements uh, to the game, um, and I think it's also partially to do with with the fact that uh, I read the right stuff at a young age. It was not just about trying to win every single game. It was also about um, reading the right materials to get you fascinated with the different aspects. So for instance, uh, I really love the book uh, Secrets of Spectac uh, Spectacular Chess. Um, not the most famous book in the world, but uh, I got to know uh, more about chess studies from that book. Do you remember the author? Uh, I'll I'll look it up. But meanwhile, I actually had a I had a. I, first of all, I need to know: Did you solve the study? <laughs> when I did. How yes, long did, did it take you from when from when your mom came Half down? Half an hour. Half an uh, hour. Okay, that's not too yeah. bad. <laughs> it's amazing how many um you know strong players like yourself have that that character. There's there's something about people who make it to your level that they just can't give up. Like that combination of competitiveness and doggedness seems to be a a pretty common trait amongst some um, grandmasters. Yeah, I think for me it was really about chess. I 
I am not really competitive in other areas, like in studies, I didn't think about, I, I wanted to be a top student in my class. So it could be just about chess and the fact that I'm just fascinated. I remember that when I was in school, um, I would make a list of the players that I've beaten. <laughs> and if I've beaten them, I, I never want to play them again. Like I want, <laughs> So I will make another list of the players who, who, I've, who I've lost to and I really want to beat them. So it's like um, the, the Arya Starks list in Game of Thrones that, you know, the guys that you really want to kill. So it was actually like that. It was literally, I literally wrote down a list of names that I wanted to beat. So that, so, so I was really competitive at a very young age and I, and I still have that um, even now. Huh. Okay. So Secrets of Spectacular Chess by Jonathan Lovett and David. Yes, that's Fried. right. Jonathan Lovett and David Freigood. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Um, <laughs> Okay, so but but the age of ten, that really is these days. I mean, it's kind of depressing to say, but it's kind of a late start. So you know, I you're supposed be... to be a GM, yeah, by now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I can, <laughs> but true, I can see how you you felt like you had more. So let's bring it back to to the period where you're training hardest. So wh what made you decide? I mean, I you've got a reputation as an opening theoretician. With hearing you say that you studied it for six hours a day, we know why. Um, so was that did you think that that was the best use of um optimizing your results or was that just where your biggest interest in chess lied why did you decide to allocate your time that way i i think that uh, definitely studying openings is one of my biggest interests uh, i have a lot of fun researching lines and uh, doing my own uh, investigations looking at books and and you know just being academic about it but at the same time i also think that it is the most practical thing to do at my age Right. So, so basically, I, I, I'm, I was never going to be one of the top 50 players in the world, let's put it like that, um, at my age. There's no way, because I just didn't have the kind of chess culture, the, the foundation that, the, say, the Russians or the Chinese or the Indian players have, or the Europeans who train at a young age. Um, I just didn't have that kind of training when I was young. So it was just not realistic to, to aim to become, say, a 2650. So... My, my target was to become a GM and, and that given, again, I, I have to emphasize that the age factor because it is not trivial at all that, that I was approaching 30 and that you need to find an equalizer somewhere um, that, that sort of balances things up. The fact that you just don't have the same kind of physical fitness, the same kind of concentration. You have other responsibilities to worry over. Um, you need to worry about money. So in your approach to chess, uh, if you want to become a GM, you just need to be, you know, more practical. And my approach was to just be very, very tricky in my choice of uh, my openings and to be extremely unpredictable. Huh. Yeah. So, so that, that means that you was... need to know everything. Yeah. And, and the fact that uh, I played in the two close GM events and that I had the list of players, in fact, everybody had the list of players beforehand, gave me a significant edge because I could actually prepare against these guys beforehand. So the pairings were drawn just one day before, but I could prepare both colors. So on the flight to, to Budapest, I had my openings mapped out for both colors against every single opponent. I mean, I cannot account for things like change in players. I mean, we can't, we can't do anything about that, but I have an idea what to do against every single player in the field. And I think that if you are really serious about making a result, um, if you are really uh, dedicated and you have the time for it, 
there's no excuse um, not preparing for this uh, before the tournament. There's just no excuse um, because you have the information in hand, you should use it. And that was, that was my way, my, that was how I sort of uh, equalized in the sense that um, I'm, I have to catch up, but I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm never going to have the time to, to look at Karpov's best games or Petrosian's best games and, you know, try to catch up in terms of that, that aspect. But I can look at the, the guy's openings and try to figure out where his weaknesses are. And then I come up with a couple of surprises for him and hope that it works. So that was my strategy at the time. So would it be more like a stylistic weakness or an actual repertoire hole? So I try to, I try not to look for one-off lines because I feel that at some point in time, you still, you should still have a, a, a repertoire that can last you for a lifetime. Um, but unless I have, unless I ran out of ideas at a point in time, I generally would try to, uh, look for something that can last, uh, that I can use for, for a longer period of time. So, uh, what I do is sometimes I also look at my own games uh, online and I try to think, uh, which is what I think a lot of players do as well. Uh, you look at your own games and you think what the other guy might be playing, which which is why I think that it's really important to have a, a wide repertoire if you're playing for the GM title because it just makes preparation a lot more difficult. If you, For instance, if you just play E4, it's just a lot more easier. But if you play both E4, D4 and C4, not F3, you know, I have a friend, uh, Daniel Fernandez, uh, Grandmaster yeah. from from the from the United Kingdom. He plays like nine different first moves, I think, with white. So, <laughs> so it, it's just really useful and, and practical. Hmm. Um. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um. So you got these two norms pretty quickly, 2011 and 2012. But I saw that you you mentioned in an interview that that then you you took time off from chess. Yeah, that was just um, idiocy and just, just. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you you cannot uh, justify such a reason, um, except for the fact that I was desperately trying to get promoted. Um, okay. Be- because I left, I left my job for a year and I was trying to catch up with my peers. So, but th- there was just no excuse because I, not only was I not playing, I was also not training. So there's just no excuse for that and. And it was it was just complacency because I felt that I okay I made my second GM norm and it was in good style. I made my GM norm in China uh, at the Asian Team Championships, um, beating the Chinese number two player. So, so at the time I was, I was, I was really complacent, and that that was a, a mistake that that uh, I regret to to this day. I should have what I should have done is I should have planned, like I have always done. I should have planned for a strategy. To choose uh, certain events, to plan uh, a schedule that allows me to train for these events, as well as to uh, not, not compromise or jeopardize my chances of promotion. So, so, so you, yeah. So you did have to go back to work. There was no avoiding I, that, right? I yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I have no. I, I didn't have a choice. I think. Yeah. Um, which, which I think is fair enough. I think everybody has to has to make yeah. a living, and and making chess from a living is possible in Singapore. Is just a lot more uncertain, um, given the fact that you're kind of relying on students or the, yeah, making money from tournaments is is really difficult. And yeah, uh, pursuing my career with KPMG just just makes a, a lot more sense at the time. Yeah, especially I mean you have a you have a good career. It, it seems. I mean, 
yeah, it's a it's a pretty decent career, and and uh, I eventually I left the firm um, to pursue uh, you know uh, accounting in in the commercial world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I guess that uh, in twenty thirteen I didn't play any standard chess events, I believe, and then in twenty fourteen I played um, in the Tromso, I believe that's a Tromso Olympiad. No, or was it twenty sixteen? I kind of. Ever. No, 2014 was the was the Tromso Olympiad, I believe. And then I came really close to a GM norm. Um, in fact, I think I needed a draw against uh, a Peruvian grandmaster, I think uh, Cordova. And I, I couldn't I couldn't make the draw. But and then that adds on to the complacency because I thought that I didn't train for a year and hence uh, I could still come so close. It probably means I am I am at the grandmaster level, but uh, spoiler alert: there's no such thing <laughs> as a grandmaster level. Uh, either you are a grandmaster or you are not. Right. That, that, so, I, I hear, you know, a lot of my friends are always saying, "Ah, this guy is going to become a GM." And even if he doesn't, he should be a GM if he puts his time to it. There's no such thing. Like it's, it's either you are a GM or you are not. Um, uh, because it's not just about knowledge. It's not about talent. It's also about the the ability to to handle your nerves your composure against tougher opponents uh, as compared to IM events. Yeah. Can I actually read a, a quote? So you mentioned your friend Junior Tay a couple times. I um, I found an interview with that he did with you for Chess Base India, um, which I believe was, uh, I believe it was right after you got your third norm, 2018. Um, and so you mentioning the pressure, you said, I always have a lot of pressure when I'm playing in GM events, given the fact that I already have two norms and that I've come close on several other occasions. This event was extra special to me because I was playing in my home country and it really would have meant something if I could turn in a good result. It got really bad after round four when I was sitting on plus two and I was going to have two whites on the next day, knowing I needed to score at least one win in order to keep the momentum going. I didn't manage the stress very well and could only sleep at 2 a.m. despite feeling really tired from all the preparatory work. Thankfully, somehow it all came together in the end. But yeah, that's that's something that I mean. I feel like I'm. I kind of. I mean, I I love chess. I love the culture. I love the history. But the there's a tendency to glamorize the competitive aspect when it can it can be so nerve wracking. So what I, what was that like? Uh, you know that process and the feeling of months of preparation and then you go and it all comes down to this tournament that you've traveled, you know, and this one was at home, but a lot of tournaments you're flying for many hours to get to, like, how do you manage that? I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, I honestly, I, I don't. Um, the fact that I made GM eight years after, after I made my second norm is, is proof that I, I was not able to manage the stress as well as I could. Um, and I think that uh, the financial stress, especially, is 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 really high. Uh, I'm fortunate that I have a I have a sort of a stable job and I could afford to pay the bills. But it is still um, it is still cost. Um, you spend time away, the time that you could you could spend with your family, time you could spend on being better at your job, and that sort of thing weighs in. And as, as when you board the flight, you all these things come together. You just okay, here we go again. You know, uh, is going to be the same old story. Am I going to come back? Hmm. you know worse off and and that's the thing right like you could come back with uh, with a huge rating loss if if everything goes goes south so so i i had conversations with with many trainers about this like how to manage this aspect uh, how do you not choke 
when you are in the clutch game, when you need a draw, when you need a win. And I was told that the more encounters you have, um, the more experienced you would be and the better you'll be. You'll, you'll be able to manage this. It, it helps if the financial stress is taken away from you. Yeah. That definitely helps because that's one less thing to worry about. But at the same time, you, the, the, the risk is that you get, uh, you get relaxed too early. So you think that this event, if I messed up in round two, it's okay, I have the next event to go to, right? So, so that, that could be a, uh, a counter, uh, counteract to that. But I would say, uh, with all things considered, I would still prefer to have, you know, um, the money to support uh, this, this traveling. And, and also, I think coming from Asia is sort of uh, uh, challenging from a practical aspect because there are just not enough tournaments in Asia. Right. And you, you can't really spend like two months away from home in Europe. It's just not, it's just not feasible. Like you can't just leave your family for two months. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So, did you, did you have uh, a friend, did you have like a, a wife and kids at this time or, or no? Uh, yes. I, I was already married by the time. Yes. Oh yeah. That makes it. I mean, in a, <laughs> Yeah, that I don't know. Probably at overall, it doesn't help. Although it does help to have support, so it's not you know like to to feel to feel loved and like at least have that aspect of your life somewhat stable yeah. can can be good as well. So yeah, definitely. I think I, I I was really fortunate that my family members have always been extremely supportive. Um, at some point in time, there will be somebody who comes who comes and tell you that you should just focus on you know being being good at your job and making a good living and stop pursuing this dream that doesn't get you anywhere because at the end, so what if you get a GM title? You know, right. What, yeah. Good? yeah. So that's, that's the, I'm not sure about uh, how it's like in the U S but in Singapore, nobody does this sort of thing. Right? Nobody. Right. I have well, been that at told, least gives yeah. you an extra motivation because you were the, the first grandmaster in Singapore for what, two decades or something like that. Yes. 21 years. Yeah. So, I mean, at least that gives you, because like when I talked to, uh, uh, there was a guy I interviewed recently, I am Kare Christensen, who mm-hmm. earned the title of I am in his fifties. And wow. for, for someone like, which is amazing. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. But for, for someone like that, I mean, he's not trying to set an example for his country or something. Like at least you, you're, you're one of the strongest players in your country. Um, and obviously I'll do respect to Kare. It's amazing, amazing what he did. Um, and he works and has a family as well, but for him, it's like, it has to be even more internally driven because as you mentioned, at least you had a few people supporting you. Um, and you know, you're going to the Olympiads, which, you know, every chess player dreams of. So you, you've got some feedback that like positive feedback and some external motivation, as opposed to it being like 100% internal driven, which is where a lot of chess players um, get their motivation. Yeah, um, I don't know about that, really. Like, I think that, like, first and foremost, I, I, I will make it <laughs> categorically clear that um, my motivation for to become a GM is, I would say 90% is, is purely self-driven. Right. I would say that um, it is not because I'm doing it for the sake of you know, my supporters or, <laughs> or to show that. So how should I put it? I'm, 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 it's more of a, 
I'm not going to be hypocritical about this and you know to, to try to pretend that I'm something more than I'm not, but it is mainly because I want to make a point and to prove to myself that I can do it. And fortunately, I was able to. And the fact that I could inspire other chess players is, and I could help to guide them along um, in their own journeys is sort of a plus point. But that is not the main motivation. So I, I, I will be completely honest about this, um, that I, I want to see that, I, I want to try to become a GM and, and to be able to prove it. So that, that was my core motivation and the fact that, uh, that people are inspired by it. Obviously, I, I'm really touched and happy with the many, co- the, the many comments that I'm, I'm something like a, a role model and that stuff. But I, I wasn't really trying to be something like that, to be honest. But the fact that I could now guide these players along is, uh, is something of a bonus for me. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, you did mention how competitive you are. So, so, it makes <laughs> so you get the final norm in 2018, the third norm, but you still need the, the rating requirement. So you needed to reach 2,500. So how did it feel? I mean, it must have been sort of bittersweet, like how far away and you you just earned it two years, one and a half years later, or whatever it is, you made it to 2,500 FIDE. So what was the feeling in 2018 when you got the third norm, but you still have this little bit of a hill to climb? Yeah, it was the same old story. Complacency set in, and I just thought it was done. I was 2493, and I thought that I would play some open events. I would try to win my first three and three to four games, and I'll make it, and then I'll just relax. And yeah, it was complacency. That's I'm not shying away from the fact. Um, the well, the very we're all, next event, we're all human. I mean, you know, I think yeah. it's a natural reaction. Yeah, I just thought that I'm gonna do it, and once again, um, I slackened and I didn't really train as hard as I could have, and I played in. I sort of uh, rashly signed signed up to play the Malaysian Open. And I, I play a very good player in round one. His rating is about 2,000, but he, he's actually a pretty decent player. His name is Suman. I think he's a really decent player. He's capable of pulling off upsets. And, and yeah, I just, I just lost. And, wow. and, so how uh, many points do you lose for that? Nine, 9.1 is maxed. Okay. It's maxed out. So, so I lost that one. I made a draw with a 21-42 okay. <laughs> um, in round three. And then I lost to a 2,100 player i think in round four and then i withdrew from the event i just couldn't believe and it was the first time i ever withdrawn from an event but i thought that was the right time and i lost 21 rating points Jeez. in four games yeah which yeah. Fide, it's a compressed scale at your level i think a lot of u.s chess players are used to like bigger swings but that's that's huge at, at your level i mean that's devastating that, that is insane i mean yeah. I, 21 points in four games is just insane it could have been worse uh, if I have continued the the tournament, but but yeah, I think that that was uh, a really big shock, and and then suddenly from two like from seven points, I was down um, twenty eight points, and the the GM title seemed uh, even further away at that point in time. So yeah, I honestly didn't know what to say, what to think. I couldn't sleep the <laughs> for a few nights, and and. And things didn't get better. Um, I, <laughs> I played in a couple of other events, so and then I continued to to bleed. And at some point, was my my, my rating was twenty four sixty five. So 
35 points. Yeah. yeah, from seven to 35 is is just. I think I read about a, a similar player, uh, a player who had a similar encounter as well. I think uh, Ashwin Jayaram. I think the Indian grandmaster. I think he's based in the US now. Yeah, I know. Uh, he the also name. said, yeah, he said something like that as well. I think he had something of collapse, uh, very similar to mine. Man. So, um, so that was 2018, 2019. Uh, and then I, I'm such a huge distance away. And once again, I came back to the point to, to strategize in a, in a better manner. So no, no signing up of events if I, if I'm not able to train. And then I was already, by the time I was already, uh, hired with, um, with Lucens and my CEO who has always been, really supportive kind of thought that I was a GM in 2018 hmm. until I broke the news that actually I'm not. I just, and, By the way, and then I, <laughs> you know, because I have a friend who got all the IM norms and then he kind of quit chess. Shout out to my friend, Donnie Ariel, who maybe, uh, maybe guessed, um, recapping a book with me soon on the podcast. Is there a name for that when you, when you've earned the norms, but you don't have the title? <laughs> Is th- that's not that's not like GM elect, is it? That you could you could say that yes, GM elect, I am I am elect. Um, okay, I've but it's not an official term. Yeah, know that for years because uh, it's, it's a really I mean it's a really sad title to have to be honest. Um, I'd much rather be a GM right. than to be a GM elect. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that 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 was those, those days that. You know, there's so so many doubts in my head, so many uncertainties. Um, uh, I have uh, a really difficult, uh, challenging job with with Lucens, who was uh, one of the the fastest growing startups in Singapore, and I I was heavily involved in things like fundraising as well as growing the company. So so taking leave to go for chess is just not an right. option. And yeah, my boss was really kind, and he. And we sort of made a deal that once we are done with the the next round of funding, if I manage to close it by a certain period of time, um, I could take uh, a month off uh, for for tournaments. So that was a deal I had with him, and and so it was, does that it mean, was does that mean you're prep you're studying the whole time, like waiting for that moment when you can actually go play, or are you like yeah, wow. So to to put it into the concrete details. So when I was conversing with uh, my counterpart uh, from the investor side, uh, we were discussing when should we close the deal and when the money should come in. <laughs> I'm not sure when I should be disclosing this, but I, <laughs> I gave a date um, somewhere in early October and I was really insistent on the date. And then <laughs> they were asking, like, what? They, they had no idea why. And, and I just said, oh, we had uh, like, things to do in, you know, in, in the later part of the year that's, you know, just many things going on and and after that i told them sorry guys i I have to go and play chess and <laughs> so i spent that <laughs> i spent the rest of october and november training and then i went to play in december so that was that was the plan were there specific events in december that you had in mind or no <laughs> no uh, as in chess tournaments yes i had so ah uh, right okay so uh, those were tournaments in serbia and mm-hmm. the, the good thing about uh, these events that, okay, there are no prizes. They are closed GM events. They are not the most glamorous because, okay, it's not a fanciful city. Right. Um, not the best known events. But the, the nice thing is that the events are connected. So 
you get to play one after the other right. immediately. And the organizer is kind of sadist, so we played double rounds almost every single day. <laughs> so there was a double, there was a, you know, for a nine round event, it was single round, then double, 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 double. So that's, that, that was like that for the, for the whole, for all three events. So I, I actually signed up for all three events. And uh, yeah, the event just, just uh, the events turned out well for me. That's great. And so you're back. Finally, you turn your, turn the mothership around, start gaining raining points again. And then you, you finally got there this year, right? Yeah. I think that I had a lot to thank, thank um, Grandmaster Avitik Rigoyan, who I just known randomly on Facebook, <laughs> like his advert just popped out on my Facebook and I thought, okay, let me just give this guy a call and see if he, if he's helping me. But before I go to that, I think I, I really should mention Grandmaster Boris Avrook, who was instrumental in my making the my second Grandmaster Norm. I think my first Grandmaster Norm as well. Sorry to say, sorry to correct that. Yeah, so he, he actually helped me to uh, throughout my entire journey since 2011 because I understood that I needed a coach, that working alone could work, but having a coach just increases your odds a lot more. Yeah. So I engaged Boris because at back at the time, I think his books were really popular and his name was everywhere. Mm-hmm. So he really helped me. Uh, I think even now we were still sort of working together. And in 2019, just before the Serbian trip, I thought, okay, let me just work with somebody else as well, just to have a different perspective. And I, I really liked the the way uh, Avitik uh, spoke and. He was he made it his own personal ambition to help me become a GM. That's great. <laughs> so we spent loads of hours, I think. Easily 40, 50 hours in that yeah. run one and a half months. A website called Chessmood, right? Chessmood.com, yeah. That's that's a website that I actually honestly um highly recommend, not just because he's my coach, but because I think the materials there are really valuable. I think that uh, there's a lot to learn about, not just openings, I think in terms of meta games concepts. Um and, and the follow-up stuff that he does, the webinars and the forum that he does, he's really engaging and he, he puts in 120%. Yeah. So just a, just a quick plug for him. He should yeah. pay me for this. But uh, um, but yeah, Avitik was a, a core reason because not only does he, he, not, not only does he, uh, really, did he really train me and, and work uh, really hard with me, I think he really believed in me and he gave me a lot of confidence um uh that that I could do this. So there were so many times that he would I, I'm not sure whether he's just saying this to to sort of brainwash me, but he he kept saying that okay, come on, you know, the fact that you could solve this position in this time means that you're twenty five hundred. <laughs> and then after you keep saying it over and over again, you whether whether it's true or not doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's important. You need you need people in your corner. Um and it probably was true. I mean clearly it was true since you made it. So 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 once you finally get there uh, this year, what did that feel like? Yeah, it, it felt like, um, honestly, I just felt relief. Um, I, I'm not really sure happiness is the right word, but I, I remember that when I received the certificate from, from FIDE on the 1st of April, I was really moved and I couldn't, I couldn't really do anything for a while. Like, and uh, on the verge of tears. Did it hit home more when you got the certificate than when you got the rating points? Yeah, surprisingly, yes. 
like when it was officially published on the first April uh, list, and and I saw the certificate. Yeah, I was really quite moved, and I, uh, yeah, emotionally it, it touched me a lot harder That's than awesome. I thought. Yeah, oh, cool. but, congratulations. I mean, it's a, it's yeah, an inspiration I, to a lot of people. So, I think I, honestly, at the time when I when I won uh, the the game that, that gained me that those valuable the final rating points, it was more of a relief than than and delight. What? I, <laughs> so it was really weird, but I was more like, okay, it's done <laughs> finally, you know. And um, if you get it in the middle of a tournament, if you get a result that will put you over 2,500, is that good enough? Or do you have to end the tournament over 2,500? Uh, it, it is good enough. So okay. it's good enough. Um, but you need to get uh, a certificate, uh, some, kind of, some form of written document from the arbiter. There's no okay. template for that because I, right. I've tried looking for it. But, there's, yeah. but basically, you need the, you need the arbiter to, to verify. And, and the reason why this, this rule <laughs> Uh, is really useful is because that there are some cases where I believe players were um, so for instance my life rating is 2500 and then I have a last round and I have to complete the tournament in order for this result to count and my opponent will threaten not to show up unless I pay him so there are cases like that um, right. I've heard of so many cases like that um, from from many friends so I think this rule was was uh, was really handy <laughs> Huh. Yeah. Okay. So Kevin, again, amazing story. Congratulations. If if you're up for it, we're not done. I'd like to pick your brain a little bit about chess improvement, but first mm -hmm. uh, yeah, sure. let's, let's take a break and hear from our friends at Chessable. So in this interview, GM Kevin Goh mentions the importance of developing and maintaining a lifetime opening repertoire. Guess what? Chessable has many lifetime repertoire courses, as they're called, based on solid openings that you can maintain over your chess playing life. They include one by the Sky GM Jan Gustafsson on Double King Pawn. I am Christoph Zalecki on the Sveshnikov Sicilian, former U.S. champion Sam Shanklin on the Semi Slav, and there are some big ones coming on the way for White as well. I've been studying a few of these courses myself, and I am enjoying and learning a lot from them. So if you want to just not remember lines, but learn and maintain opening ideas over time, chessable.com can help you out. Okay, and we are back. So Kevin, I feel like you probably have a bit of unique perspective. I mean, most of the people listening, myself included... will never be grandmasters, um, but we're still hoping to get better um, with, with whatever time we have. So you probably don't have time to do a ton of training, but you probably at least understand the struggle um, more than like a super GM might. So what advice do you give? I'm sure you get asked all the time for, for chess improvement advice from club players. So what, what advice do you give to, to uh, adult improving chess players? I, I think that the, the first thing is to have uh, a very clear goal. Um, for so, Some people like to set the ratings as a guideline. So I have many friends who say that they want to be 2,000 rated or they want to be 2,300 rated. And then uh, seek advice as to whether that's a realistic goal or not. I think that's, that's wow. really important. I have some friends who came to me, he, you know, they, they are like 1,800 and 35 and they asked me whether they could ever become GMs. And I just flat out, I just said no. There's just no chance that it's not because uh, of of inability is just that the that that age will play against you. So that's it's just it's just not possible. You just 
don't you will not be able to find the time, the energy, and the commitment to to get uh, get on that task. And then and then we work from there. So for instance, if you want to be a, a twenty three hundred level player, say from two thousand, I would say that it's possible, but there are certain aspects that you need to work on. Um, then we start from the openings. We start from calculation, and I have a I have a rather controversy opinion of my own, and 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 is that I think the studying of of the end games is is completely irrelevant in this age. I noticed when you said you studied that it was all calculation and openings, so that was by design. Yeah, I I I'm pretty decent at end games, but uh, I'm never going to be a huge expert at it. Uh, I'm interested in end games. I can watch Custom Muller's right. end game shows all day long, but. I would never invest the time that uh, that I could use for other aspects of my chess on, on say Dobrovsky and Game Manual, which is of course uh, a tremendously useful book. But uh, taking putting things into context, as a twenty nine year old at the time, uh, there's just no point uh, looking at end games. I think that's brushing up on openings, making sure that your calculation is spot on that you are able to spot tactics fast, you don't blunder, and you keep up your physical fitness. I think those are more essential to getting good results. Um, but if you are learning this from a young age, then obviously you have different goals. You might want to become a world champion or a 2700 player, and of course you need to have that kind of foundation. So I think that's the first thing. You don't. That, that is my own opinion. I, I don't think there's ever a study being done for this, but I can I can share that a, a renowned Chinese GM shared the same views as me. So interesting, yeah. That if you're in your thirties, forget end games. That's funny because, um, I mean, since I ask someone almost every week for chess improvement advice, obviously I've gotten sort of the full spectrum of advice over the course of of doing this. <laughs> um, I would say it's in the minority that people single out end games as um as an important. Um, aspect, but but it does happen. Like I remember when I talked to Grandmaster David Smerdin, um, who I believe you know, um, I think he's someone that mentioned endgames being important. Um, and I can, what what appeals to me about the I haven't I'm finally, my my personal chess. I'm like finally trying to get better again after some years just focusing on family and work. Um, but and I've thought of I've been thinking I'll do endgames, but it's it's never a priority. Um, but so, so his, David Smerdin's argument was basically you save so many half points here and there between like converting a, a position that someone else might not convert or swindling someone. Um, are you not receptive to that argument or you just think there are other half points to be saved by focusing on other aspects? Yeah, I, I'm a good friend of David, actually. Um, <laughs> I really like the guy. I think he's a very strong player. Uh, he's also an amateur player, by the way. I think he's, yeah. he's yeah. not an, a, a university professor, I believe. Yeah, and I think uh, it kind of boils down to style. So, firstly, he plays like his main line against the Sicilian is the C three Sicilian. Oh, you're about you're about to <laughs> fire. <some shots. laughs> Not nothing against the C three Sicilian, you're but right. you do get a fair bit of end games from 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 that opening. I think. Okay, you do get big attacks as well. Um, but but I think it's fair to say that it's gener generally a quieter uh, approach as compared to open Sicilians. But I feel like if you want to make big rating gains in a short period of time, um, learning endgames is not the, the most practical use of time. 
because the game might not last that long. And and if you have a sound opening repertoire, or if you have a bad opening, let's let's talk about it conversely. If you have a bad opening repertoire, you won't even survive the, till then. And so I, there are just so many different perspectives. So if if I'm playing, um, let's say a, a young sixteen year old. So I actually have a very good example. I think in 2017, I played against a very young, promising uh, German player. I think his name is Martin Julian or something like that. He's a really strong player and very well prepared, I think, in general. So for that game, I had an opening idea that he wasn't aware of. And the game was over, um, like straight from the opening. And... Could I have won that game with better endgame approach as compared to um, <laughs> better openings? I, I highly doubt that, um, to, be, to be completely frank. So that one opening idea helped me win the game like in relatively easy. So, so that's... I, I, think, I think that David has a fair point that... And, and one day I, I will regret this because I'm going to lose a slightly worse book ending... <laughs> Right. Or I'm going to throw away a, a win in the in the promising position. But looking at my own games, I, I really don't have that many games where the end games are are not clarified. So so meaning to say that it's either that I, I reach an end game where I have a big advantage and I probably could convert it, um, or or the other way around. So so that that is my that's just my my approach and my my opinion um, okay. to this. Yeah, and I think you make some compelling arguments. Um, do you think that that advice would extend like throughout the rating spectrum? Like I'm thinking of people rated below 1800, something like that. Do you think that that people um, rated below 1800 also should be spending more time on openings and tactics, or is that more as you get higher that you think you have to focus on other things first? So I'm presuming we are talking about uh, adults, so for adult yeah. viewers. So I would say so, yes, because if it's because once again, as an adult, you just have other commitments. You have less time. Um, does studying? I, I I'm not sure whether studying the let's say the Trotsky. Uh, you are familiar yeah. with the Trotsky? Yeah, yeah. That that two nights against a pawn. Okay, yeah. that, that's that's really that's that's not that's that's not a fair example. But let's right. say rook like, and bishop against rook and bishop against rook, for example. example. Yeah. yeah, you. I mean, Sam Shanklin said on the on the live broadcast yesterday that it takes uh, like twenty hours, twenty minutes to learn this, learn to defend this. But it takes actually much more to learn how to win it from the Philidor position. And to date, I have no idea how to win it. I've learned it before, and I couldn't remember. I probably would spend hours trying to remember it. I just feel that um, it's a funny example because I actually have gotten like three rook and bishop against rooks in my lifetime, but you, it's fair to say that you generally don't don't get that sort of positions anyway. So, and and also I think that uh, my opinion on say pawn endings, which happens uh, I think the most often as and as well as uh, rook endings, uh, pawn endings is all about calculation, in my opinion. Right. Okay, you need you need to know some basic concepts like triangulation, uh, triangulation, you know, zug zhuang, opposition, um, you know, this sort of thing. But but on top of that, all all the all the endings that I've encountered in my lifetime are all extremely concrete, and and being a better calculator tends to get you tends to get a better result. So 
So I feel like working on calculation is, is actually more important, not just tactics. I think calculation is actually the, the ability to visualize moves and, and, and also calculation technique is, is, is important. Okay. So that would be my emphasis for, for players who, who want to reach, say, master level, say 2300 or 2400. I think working on calculation is definitely one of the best things you can do. And then, then the next thing is to, to look at openings. I, I'm sure that there are a lot of old school uh, chess, uh, cultured chess grandmasters out there who will say that what I'm saying is just rubbish. But yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's just the approach that I've used and it has worked for me. So. And what about in terms of how to allocate the time? So if our emphasis is primarily openings and calculation, uh, you being at a higher level mentioned you for six hours of openings and two hours of calculation, but I'm guessing for lower rated players, you would skew that or like, how would you, how would you divide say 10 hours a week? Um, of, of prep then, time, study time. If it's ten, yeah, I see. If it's 10 hours a week, then I would equally apportion the time to um, looking at uh, calculation, openings, and then going through some uh, useful meter games. So, so that collection of uh, uh, classics, would I think, would be useful because... Uh, we, we should not forget that, that part of the game as well. So the ability to, to understand the es essence of the position and not make uh, silly position errors, I think is also quite important. So I, that, that would actually be my recommendation to... I, I know that I'm sort of contradicting myself to... Now, now we go and look at the, you know, Botvinnik or, right. <laughs> or Karpov. But I think at, some, at, some, at, at every single level, you should be looking at some of these... Uh, world champion games uh, and if you are short of time i recommend tigran petrosian or anatoly kapov because i think petrosian is well known for his uh, defensive abilities yeah i think yeah so um people can attack easily i think it's it's a joy to attack and it's kind of easy to attack right like to come up with a mating uh, mating attack and the sort of thing but it's it's a lot more unpleasant to to defend and it's a very important skill Okay, good advice. And what about a uh, book recommend or book or resource recommendations? You mentioned um, Secrets of Spectacular Chess, and you mentioned, of course, uh, Chess Mood, your your friend off Tech Gregorian site. Um, what else should people? What other recommendations do you find yourself giving? Yeah, I I really like this book, um, and it's kind of uh, very obscure. I think it's it's called Positional Sacrifices by Neil McDonough. There's another book that's named exactly the same. I think it was written by Mikhail Suba. But the, the McDonald book is, it really opened my eyes up to um, the, the fact that chess has so many different possibilities. Okay. So yeah. it has many different sections. So as the name suggests, it, it contains many examples where one side sacrifices material for, for seemingly uh, innocuous gains. So the game that the, made the most impression from the book, and I still remember it is the, between uh, Kapov and Gelfan. And Black had the bishop on b7. Um, White had the queen on c4 and a pawn on e4, and a rook on d d1. And then we have a bunch of other pieces on the board. And Kapov played rook d1 to d5. And it just struck me that I, I think that 
there will be very few um, players who are say below twenty three hundred who will ever even consider a move like this, because we yeah. are taught at the at the at the young age to that you know that's the value to every single piece and that yeah we are we are trained to be materialistic at some in some extent and and if you want to sacrifice material, you you need to win the the game eventually. Like you have to meet, you have to mate, or you don't sacrifice material. So to give away a whole exchange for just positional compensation is was was really alien to me, and yeah, that that was that is really the first book that I recommend to to many of my my friends as well. I think it helped me appreciate the game a lot more. Good, yeah, and I know for for adults, as you mentioned, and myself included, that is it's a hard habit to break because it feels hardwired the materialism. The the um, as Jonathan Rouson called it the um, you know the the anchoring of the point values even though in reality we might know intellectually that the point values can be much more dynamic um, but it's hard to over the board to to think about that so it sounds like a good yeah. recommendation. It's really hard and and to me it was really strange that when I showed a sacrifice to a friend and then I just says that. No, the conversation is really obvious, right? And then he's he would say no, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and then I would think why why is he thinking like that? And I understood that it's just because that he's not exposed to that sort of element before, and that's why he's thinking in that way. So I I feel that uh it's important to uh while it's important to train to be a better player, I think it's even more important to to do something in chess that helps you appreciate the game a lot more because it gives you more motivation. Because if you, I mean, I don't know about going through like tactics, solving puzzles over and over again. At some point, it's going to be boring. I, I, I think like you have to find, you have to train in a way that helps you enjoy the game uh, more or, or else you just lose the motivation. Yeah, yeah, definitely true. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, calculation, I mean, it's hard because you don't get immediate benefits that's one one thing i've over the years i've been uh less um i've been less of an advocate for opening study than you have it's fair to say but in terms i recently read uh willie hendrick's new book um on the origin of good moves and i had him on the show and he also advocates as um that that people who are kind of at a plateau or um near their peak in particular open studying openings can be a good way to still improve your chess and as i get back into studying i just find that um, when I study openings, I, I get something tangible, you know, it's like, especially shout out to Chessable, of course, who sponsors the show, but, um, like I just see the improvement. It's, you know, I didn't know this a week ago and I know it now. Whereas when you do calculation training, it might be helping, but it's not, unless you're doing, uh, also, um, you know, there's this puzzle rush experiment that Elijah Logazar, a recent guest, has people doing hours a day. Like, I think if you do hours a day, maybe you'd get better over some period. But for people who have less time, it's it's it can be hard to see the reward, even if you're yeah. putting the time in. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know if that's, you know, if it's proven that, you know, repeating. I, I know there's this book called The Woodpecker. The method, Woodpecker Method, yeah. And then... He was advocating something like repeating puzzles over a certain period of time and then trying to shorten the period of time to solve all these puzzles and trying to get a higher score every single time. I've never, I mean, in, intuitively, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like the right way to train. Uh-huh. But 
it, it worked apparently for, for Hans uh, Tikkanen, I think it was him, yeah. and Axel Smith. So it worked for them. I think they scored good results after that. But just intuitively, it just feels like a very strange way to train. Um, and it doesn't sound like a fun way to train as well. <laughs> it's, I yeah, it's not, yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, did a I did a whole show about the woodpecker method with a friend of the show Neil Bruce and <laughs> and a lot of people online are are really digging in right now. So and the other thing is for I've uh, announced I mentioned this somewhere, but um, friend of the show Christopher Chabri, who's actually a cognitive scientist and has mm-hmm. mentioned sort of the the you know the scientific grounding of space repetition generally um, is well founded, but w- we don't know. Like, okay, it helps you learn openings, it helps you learn language. But if you memorize some pattern, a checkmate pattern, does that help your calculation or do you just know that one pattern? So I feel like that's sort of that's sort of the questions that we don't have the answers to. And I'm gonna have Chris back on in a few weeks and try to pick his brain a little bit. But honestly, I think even for the the cognitive scientists in the world, we just don't know yet. So Yeah, I, I think that there is honestly there's very little evidence that at least to my knowledge, so uh, happy to be corrected. But uh, at least with my conversations to some friends, uh, mostly IMs and GMs, they they not only do they have they never heard of this method, they don't believe in it. But I mean, okay, if he has worked for some some other players, yeah, it means there there must be some positive to it. And and I also want to uh, briefly talk about the the, the the bit about I think you mentioned about space repetition and openings. Yeah. Um. I think it's important to to repeat, uh, definitely to repeat the moves uh, that of lines that you have studied, but uh, overdoing it is it is it could be counterproductive. Yeah. Because because it's just not a good way to memorize openings, um, unless unless you are doing this like Karana doing this thirty moves lines in right. this com, and they already have eidetic uh, memories and they are used to this sort of thing. But for the for people like 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 you and me, you know, we are just normal people. It's just not doable, and and um, it's it's really more important to understand the key ideas and to play openings that that you like and you sort of have a good sense of. So, even if you don't remember the lines, you can work work things out over the board. And I think that's more important than just you know um, doing this space repetition thing over and over again. I I'm not really sure that that's that's a good way to study openings. Yeah, it, it's a good point. I I always I've been quoting this uh, Alex Yermolinsky. I re- recently reread The Road to Chess Improvement, and he says, uh, "Yeah, that's ne- a good book. I have it." Yeah, and he says, "Never learn an opening move if you don't understand why it's played." Like, yeah. So, so you might see some move, but if you don't know the context, and I've been struggling with that because I'm trying to to brush up on my repertoire, and you know, not everything is explained, and then you have to tinker around with the with the engine until you f- sort of feel like. I mean, obviously, you could just think about it too and maybe figure it out. But, <laughs> but more likely, I'm going to get the answer from the engine. And it's, it, you know, sometimes it involves some trial and error, and that can take some time. So if you're feeling like you're trying to get through this puzzle set sort of thing, problem set or a repertoire set, it can it can feel like it's not productive, but actually it is to actually know why you're playing the move. Because then, yeah. as you say, if you if you're not remembering, you'll be able to generate the thought process, or at least you have a fighting chance. Yeah, it's, it's actually extremely relevant because there are many occasions when, you know, the opponent will just make uh, a small sidestep to the to the line that you have been memorizing. And then you just realize that this is not something that you have 
Yeah, you want to tell them, hey, repeat? <laughs> yeah, that, that's not the right move. Could you play the right move so, so yeah, that I yeah, know what to yeah. do? It's like, dude, you got this wrong. Like, do you want to correct this? Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I think that you're, you're absolutely right. I think that it's really important to understand the move orders at the very start. It helps you appreciate the game more as well, I think. So I, I was trying to understand this Rosolimo stuff. Um, um, to give you a concrete example, I think the line that... Uh, in game one of uh, Karana Carlson, so where, where White goes bishop b5, bishop takes c6, bc6, and this whole line with um when, with black going knight to f6 to d7 to f8. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to really understand the move orders. And and eventually I did. And then I never forgot. Uh, you know, I've never f- forgotten the line after that in Blitz. Like I could remember every single aspect of the line and, and at which point do I play, for instance, when white goes um, F2 to F4, I have a pawn on E5, it goes F2 to F4, the typical pawn break, and after E takes F4, he can capture with the knight or with the bishop. Sorry, with the rook or with the bishop. And in one case, you respond with knight to E6, and the other, you respond with bishop to E6. If you memorize this, you're just going to forget one month down the road. Um, you have to understand it. Yeah. So I think this is actually one of the, the greatest examples I could think of. You just need to understand the point uh, of the position and then it just it's just a lot more easier. I, I think that in very, very concrete and specific positions, you might need to memorize certain moves, but those should be the exception. It should not be the norm. Okay. Excellent advice. All right. Well, well Kevin, this has been amazing. Um, I have one, at least one more question for you. Um, from your friend Andre Tarakov, FM Andre Tarakov, chessable author who put us in touch. So I appreciate that uh, Andre did that. This has been an, a really um, enlightening interview. So he he asks you. He says you spent the last ten years chasing the dream of becoming a grandmaster. Now that you have achieved it, what's your next goal? Yeah, I think that firstly the fact that I struggled so hard to to break the twenty five hundred level. Um, like my rating is not twenty five oh one. It's not. You know, it's not be way above 2,500. I'm just, right. I just barely made it. It probably means that I'm not really a 2,500 player. So, um, so for instance, there are many players who, who have crossed the 2,400 mark and then they immediately drop back to 2,350, 2,360. And that probably means that they are not consistent 2,400 players. And I was there at, a, at one point and I think I'm, I'm exactly now at the 2,500 level. The fact that I struggled so hard to get here probably means that I'm not at this level. That that's my uh, my my own uh, uh, evaluation or assessment of my my chess playing ability, and I would like to fix that. I would like to be consistent um, in terms of playing at the at the a reasonable grandmaster level uh, in the tournaments to come. So I still want to train. I want to get better. Obviously, the pressure is off. Right. Um, I no longer need to go for GM events. I can actually play in, you know, nice open in nice, nice cities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the guys from Novisat will kill me, but, <laughs> but they know what I mean. I mean, I'm sure they agree that. You know, well, they, yeah, I mean, they provide a great service. I mean, it should be clear yeah. because I mean, people work so hard to get their titles. And if you just go to like, uh, you know, Aeroflot open or, um, you know, um, the the Isle of Man tournament. I mean, they're they're great tournaments, but there's so much in those big Swisses is out of your hands in terms of getting a norm. So, yeah, I I would like to be able to you know play chess at a good level and and just enjoy it without you know 
calculating performance rating every single round. Right. So, <laughs> so I think that's the first step. I think on, I think the bigger goal for me is to really uh, consider how I can uh, contribute um, to towards the young players. I, I think I have a lot of experience to share. I think many young players are a lot more talented than myself. Um, uh, I'm not ashamed in sharing this, uh, that, that there are so many talented players that are more talented than, than, than I am and that they just need some guidance uh, and to somebody to point them in the right direction. And I think I can do that for them. I, I don't claim to know everything, but um, obviously I've gone through some of these struggles. I kind of know uh, what is what I think would be good advice. And that, that's something that I'm looking at um, in the foreseeable future. That's great. And I guess... Um, well, I'm, first of all, I'm glad to hear that you're going to keep playing competitively, even even after this long journey. Um, and I guess you were planning on playing the Olympiad probably before. Were you going to make time for that before COVID yeah, came? Yeah, I yeah I took time off. Uh, I took uh, uh, leave already for for the event, and and now Fide just announced the Fide Online Chess yeah. Olympiad. So I've submitted a request to the to the federation. Uh, <laughs> the, that the, that we should be sending the team. There's there's no reason not to send the team at all. So, yeah. For, for this online event, so uh, so yeah, I, I still want to I still want to improve. I think I still want to to learn more about chess. Um, I it, it, I could not possibly go back to the same kind of intensity. Uh, uh, like I was when I was preparing for Serbia, but. But I will still work on chess. I think I think it's important that if you if you are serious about chess, you should be looking at some chess every single day, no matter how tired you are after a hard day's work. You should be logging on to whichever website, chess24 or chess.com, and you look at some live broadcast to just listen to some of these great players and uh, and their commentary and and just be involved in chess in some way. Um because I don't think I don't think you should, you should use. I mean, if you're really serious about chess, then then putting in the extra effort should not be should not be that big a problem. You're not even spending time to solve a puzzle. You're just watching live commentary from strong players. How how hard could that be, right? Yeah. I mean, so there's no excuse. Like, um, if you really want to be good at chess, you should be touching chess every single day. That's great advice and. Okay, one more. Any parting advice for anyone stuck at a plateau? I mean, that's something that obviously you have a lot of ex- experience with, having been through yep. so many ups and downs. Yeah, I'm very familiar with being, <laughs> with stagnating, with choking. Right. <laughs> so, um, I I think that the best advice I could give is uh, is the one that I got from uh, Jacob Agat. That's not not that's not how the way we should pronounce his name, but I'm not going to attempt it. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> But uh, I, I asked him that, uh, I think back, that was in 2017, that I made my 2GM norms in 2012. And I've, since then, I've not, you know, I've not made uh, any progress in, uh, in any way whatsoever. And he, he just said that if you have been doing the same way, the, you know, getting, getting progress um, using a particular way doesn't mean that it works every single time. Right. So the fact that I've stagnated means that that way uh, is no longer working. So it's time to do something else. So that was the one thing that that, and, that he said. And and what that exact thing is, consult somebody better than you. 
Okay. So what did you change when, when you got that advice? Yeah. So I, I switched, I, I focused a lot more on calculation. So I, I, we have, we're coming up with the same topic um, that, that we spoke of earlier. So I think it's not just about solving puzzles anymore. It's about calculation techniques. Mm -hmm. So again, I have uh, Avidik Rigoyan to thank for this. So he gave me very concrete examples um, that, that, that requires a lot of, that, that, that causes a lot of stress and strain um, because it requires you to visualize the position very, very deeply, six to seven moves uh, into the position. And it's not just about tactics, it's about seeing possibilities. It's about having the right calculation technique. Like we even worked out the four-step process in, in like um, in, in certain positions. So I'm not sure I'm making any sense here. I'm kind of uh, rambling a little bit, but, but basically I, I focus a lot more on calculation as compared to the past, uh, in, uh, especially calculation technique. Okay. So at some point he, he wasn't interested in whether I, I'm getting the positions or I'm, I'm getting the right answer. He's more concerned with the process. So, so he was, he will be asking me things like, so this is position A. Now you're at position X. If you mess it up, I do you go back to position A. Like, do you start from the beginning? Because if you are, you're not improving. Hmm. You should have an anchor somewhere in between and then you work backwards slowly from there. So it's kind of abstract. It's hard to Yeah, know, I mean, it's high, it's high level advice. But I mean, if anyone's doing yeah. any sort of blindfold training there, they're, that's useful, you know? Yeah, blindfold training definitely works. It's just it's just difficult. It's just so tedious yeah. that yeah. and daunting that people people don't do it for for good reason. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, Kevin, this has been this has been amazing. Thank you. I think uh, there's there's a lot to learn from this, so I really appreciate it. And plus, your story is just inspiring on its own. So so thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, Ben. Uh, it's, it's been my pleasure. This is the I, I think I've never shared so deeply about the, the entire journey um, to anybody. So I think yeah, I'm very happy to share my experience and. Um, yeah, I'm happy to even, you know, follow follow up with any any questions that anybody might have. Sure. Um, um yep, yeah, I'm just... sure I'm sure a few people will take you up on that. So I know you're I know you're on Twitter. Um, do you share your email address? Are you on Facebook? What's the best way for people to, and I also to keep up with any future charity initiatives? Um Yeah, uh yeah, you can use my email. Um should I say out or uh, no, sure. I'll just put it in the show notes yeah. if it's okay. So, yeah, you can you can reach me by email on Facebook or on Twitter. I don't use Twitter that often. Not not as flamboyant as our friend Olympio. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but uh, but yeah, I, I'm generally quite uh, accessible. Uh, Excellent. All right. Well, thanks. Platforms. Thank you so much, and congratulations again. It's it's really Thank incredible. You. I'm glad I'm glad you made it after all that hard work. Yeah, me too. <laughs> 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 okay and thanks for staying up late kevin have a good night no thanks it's been fun okay cheers cheers special thanks as always to my producer matthew passy and thanks to those who continue to help spread the word about perpetual chess positive reviews on podcast platforms and youtube help people discover the show as does telling a friend or sharing it on social media speaking of which you can follow me on twitter i'm at beneficial one 
or join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview. But most of all, of course, I want to thank those who provide financial support to the show, especially right now with so much disruption going on in the world. Most of all, I want to thank Chessable for sponsoring the show and to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page to help sustain and improve Perpetual Chess. And without further ado, I would like to give special thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, Apprentice Chess Twitch Channel, Andrew Alharjri, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Driver, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natal, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Kahn, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Moonmaster9000, you recently stopped your pledge, but Perpetual Chess will always love you. The famous Mr. Dodgy, Peter Zhodi, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stonix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of Strong Chess, Todd Kennedy, and I also would like to thank the following people. Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Tarakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Anidi Deer, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Malin, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas of U.S. Chess, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Blaskacek, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Daylin Shelton, Dirk Decker, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Ian Mason, I am elect Donnie Ariel, or possible not I am elect, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letarte Lavoie, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barter, Giovanni Russo, Greg Harfst, Han Schut, Harish Srinivasan, Jacob Kovach, Jacques Pari, James Aspinwall, James Banastia, James Murr, Jason Woolham, Jadeep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Holland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, JJ Schnod, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joe Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Kapala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Ryforth, Laura Beljowski, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Miguel Araspidi, Mike Clem, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Salin, Neil Bruce, Negmat Malajanov, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, GM Pascal, Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randall Temple, Ricky Grahava, Richard Hollenbuck, Robert Turner, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwalder, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatia of Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, Wayne Beam, 
William Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zivko Stoyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. Catch you guys soon. Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.